Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man? Hello and welcome to the first Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast of the Week. Owen here with Ken and Murph. Hi, Owen, how are you? Good hey, to Do Manchester City players care whether they win or lose a Manchester derby? That's a question we're going to pose today. I'm going to pose right now, Ken. Uh-huh. I'm basing this on their lackluster display yesterday. And Gary Neville's commentary. I, I've mentioned on this podcast before how much I enjoy Gary Neville. Any game involving Manchester City when they're <laughs> underperforming, especially when it's against Man United, but he just can't help no. really ripping into them. It's, yeah. it's like a, a, a very, very strict school teacher lecturing some very... Unruly children. And no, it's it's somebody who hates teaching and particularly hates the students in his class. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, you've you've already you're acting on a you know Pink Floyd, right? Uh, you know the wall. You you know those children, yeah. the the teachers screaming. Yeah. Eat your meat. You know, if you don't eat your meat, how can you have any pudding? That's Gary Neville from the commentary box when Manchester City are, well, their midfield players in in one case are failing to track back quickly enough. I I I happen to disagree. I, pre- I agree one hundred percent with the teacher. Uh, uh, analogy. However, you, Gary Neville yes, is more. Yes, you stand still at it. <laughs> well, the opposite of, of stand still. Yeah, no. Um, you, yeah, yeah, you're okay. You're standing still. Gary Neville is. He's the teacher who cares too much about his possible A students. Oh, you mean like, that's what that's what Gary. It's I can't bear to watch you squandering your life away. The leaving cert is the biggest thing in your life. If you don't get an A in business. I don't think I'm going to be able to live with myself, let alone you. Yeah, look That's at that, the problem. Look at that other stu- group of students down the road, there, down the corridor, Crystal Palace. Look at those guys. Yeah. A lot more limited than you. Into the, His C now would be a lot better than your A. Yeah. I think those teachers hate teaching, hate their students, and are passive-aggressive sadists. Uh, <laughs> they, you say they, potato, kid. They're, <laughs> they're the kind of teacher who's, who's claiming it's for your own good or this hurts me more than it hurts you. It, it's just... 
it just inches away from look what you made me do. <laughs> look what you've made me do now. I mean, those kind of teachers don't get free reign to their sadistic impulses quite as much in the current in the current legislative environment. But you know, I do. I wouldn't be so. Uh, I wouldn't be so keen on that type. Of there thing. was a particular point I was going to raise from Gary Neville's commentary, but I might save that until a little bit later on. Our chat with Jonathan Wilson. It surrounded the scoring of their final. Okay, essentially the point was they scored the final goal and still had an outside chance of maybe scrambling a draw. Of course, they probably weren't going to, yeah. but supporters might like to see them rushing, barreling through the goalkeeper, well, dragging the ball back, rather than all trotting slowly back. This is it, isn't it, really? I mean, this is what you were writing about this morning in today's Irish Times, Ken. No, uh, it wasn't, op- wasn't. Well, optics. That's yeah. what it's all about. Oh, it is true. I mean, Neville, I think, at that point revealed that he's not a maths teacher because uh, they did still need to score two goals in a very short space of time having just taken 90 minutes or 88. Well, Gary Neville said, it's it's 88 minutes, not 89, but it is the 89th minute, Gary. That's why if it says 88-something on the clock, then it goes in the, you know, score is 89, 89th minute, just to get that straight. I reckon Ken was kind of annoying as a pupil to some of his teachers. He'd correct them <laughs> just, like that if they made just a slight little. errors. Yeah, yeah. yeah like I'm... Let's get into it with maybe Jonathan. You may have touched a nerve there. Uh, it's time for Ken Hurley's <laughs> report on sport. I've actually killed Ken's momentum here. Sorry about that, Ken. No, we're back. We're back on. Now, I mean, you said why do Manchester City, Manchester City players care? Why shouldn't anyone care about this? You know, what more is it than the, the clash of two, um, you know, cynical corporations? Uh, the one representing um, asset stripping, rentier capitalism. Um, spreading false consciousness, the Foxconn of false consciousness around the world, and the other uh, uh, propaganda instrument for, you know, the acceptable face of slavery. Why should anybody care what's happening out there? But it did look as though they did care, at least, um, well, certainly Manchester City managed to create that impression for the first uh, 15 minutes or so, and played really well. And uh, Manchester United throughout the match, as I think best summed up by the expression on Marwan Fellaini's face, a fraction of a second before he nutted the ball past Joe Hart. Did you see his face at that moment? Well, yeah, I mean, he's kept his eyes open. Here, just do an impression of what you think Marwan Fellaini's face looks like. <laughs> okay, he's, you know, uh, how would you describe that? How Murph is looking right now? Yeah. I'd say he's, I've done that, I... <laughs> Sorry, I may, I may have overdone it that time. Basically, I'm sucking my teeth, my teeth in, my eyes have... Glazed over. You're kind of snarling. Yeah, this. You've, you've, you've scrunched up your, your skin around the top of your nose here and yeah. do a snarl. Your, your eyebrows are definitely um, indicating some kind of a violent uh, intent. Oh, um, don't let it drop yet. We're still... Uh, sorry. It's, just, it's quite sore. And uh, that was it. I don't, and there was a lot of that from Manchester City, uh, Manchester United, and, and maybe not quite so much from, from Manchester City over the, um, over the period of the game. Um, obviously, poor old Manuel Pellegrini, as is the routine, ended up um, having to answer questions about his future, which he didn't really answer. Although he did criticise his team a little bit. He said maybe it is something to worry about. They were saying you, the lack of spirit in your team is, is shocking. Mm. What do you think of it? Are you concerned by that? He goes, yeah, maybe I am actually. Maybe I am concerned about it at this stage. Um, he had given some comments uh, before the match, which were published in the day of the match, saying... Uh, the pressure for the manager of a big team is always the same. This season, you sack Wenger. After that, Van Hal. After that, you sack um, the Liverpool manager. Uh, <laughs> after that, you sack me. Uh, after that, you sack the Everton manager. Uh, you sack all except the team who are top of the table. Go to Spain, and they sack Luis Enrique and Carlo Ancelotti. So what pressure are people talking about? So he's making a point about the uh, 
um, kind of goldfish memory of the media um, who, you know, essentially want to sack anyone who's just lost a game or a couple of games in a row or eight games in the last 15 as Pellegrini has yeah. and slumped uh, down the fourth on the table. Um, I mean, uh, he, he he can't really give too many answers, though, as to what's going wrong here. I mean, Pellegrini's not the kind of guy who's... He's not going to be like Tim Sherwood. He's not going to tell you exactly what is going through his mind at that moment. You know, he's going to tell you what he thinks you need to hear. So he says something like, the only way to explain our run is that, and everyone's, you know, pens poised, is that we don't have the results. But, I mean, that's just, that's just restating, you know. Yeah. The only reason to explain our run is our run, is what he's saying. So he hasn't really said much. Um, we played well for 20 minutes, but we must not just play for 20 minutes. We must play for the whole game in this way. Um, you know, Pellegrini, I actually have a lot of sympathy for him. I don't think that Pellegrini is the problem. Uh, I think that he did extremely well last season uh, with largely with, with a similar team. He's not really in control of elements of, of how Manchester City is run. Yet, when, Man- when Roberto Mancini was there, I would have thought similar enough achievements and taking them from a slightly lower base even. Uh, you, you seem to be highly critical of him. But even least, when they won the league, it, it was a sense of, of course they won the league, look at all the money they've spent. Mm. But you're giving Pellegrini more credit for his triumph last year. Is well, that fair? So we, we, well, I would, at least Mancini showed that he cared. Well, that that's was, the thing. Th- that was the big thing. When you, you know? saw those photos from Manchester City's training round of, of uh, Roberto Mancini <laughs> grappling with Mario Balotelli... Um, you could see that you know he here was he a man who cared. cared. He he was fighting one of his own players. I actually read that in one of the papers. I can't remember which. I'm sorry now to whoever the columnist was. Um, but it, there was a column essentially saying uh, Manuel Pellegrini, you know, could learn from some of the best British managers. I'm going to pick Brian Clough because he was what a star he was. And then told a story about how Clough went into a uh, a dog pound, and he said. Give me a dog. And the obviously the owner of the pound or whoever the manager of the pound was running around trying to find the best dog in the pound. Who you know, for, I want to find the best little puppy dog for Brian Clough, the legendary manager of I don't know whether it was Forrester Derby at the time. And Clough said, No. Bring me the runt of the litter. I want the smallest, scrappiest little dog who nobody wants. I want that dog. And so so the, the manager went and fished out some wretched you know, tiny uh, mm-hmm. uh, run to the litter, as, as Clough was calling it. And Clough cradled the dog in his in his hand, probably fit into into one hand. And he said, you are going to have such an amazing life. And so this showed his tender side, you see. Showed his caring side. And then anyway, Clough, uh, some, I think it was a reserve game or something like this. Uh, he said, uh, he went along, of course, with a dog, Labrador. <laughs> Same dog, I think. Dog's all grown up now. <laughs> and... Uh, but, but, you know, he's not impressed by what he sees at all. Some guys seem to be uh, swinging the lead a little bit. Maybe they, they hadn't seen the green jumpered figure with the Labrador come in and sit, <laughs> sit down. And stuff. I don't know if he was wearing a green jumper on oh, this particular day. But um, uh, so imagine how surprised they were when they went into the dressing room and found... And I'm really sorry, because I'm telling you this whole column, no, and I can't even remember who, who wrote okay. it. It's you, okay, you aren't claiming it as your own. That's no. the main thing. You've covered your bases there. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to tweet it later on, Ken. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, well he goes in, goes into the dressing room, and, uh, and the players are there, and he says to one of the players, Listen, son. And the guy says, What is it, Mr. Clough? Have you ever been punched really hard in the stomach? Uh, no, Mr. Clough. <laughs> you know... <laughs> 
and Clough sort of casts a baleful eye around the dressing room, you know, kind of with a, you want some, anyone else wants some? Uh, and, uh, okay, so the point essentially yeah. was that showed his ruthless side, you see. This was the same man who'd been to the dog pound, remember? Neil Moxley of the Mirror. Oh, it was Neil Moxley of the Mirror, okay. This the man the, who wrote this. So he, oh, so, uh, so, Essentially, Pellegrini should try to be a bit more like that. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. All right. Maybe there's a... I don't know if hitting your players actually really is... is achieve, I don't know if that was among the best, thing Brian, Brian Clough, best things that Brian Clough did. You know, like Steve Jobs apparently was always real. You know, he didn't suffer fools, which is another way of saying he would routinely humiliate staff who, who opened their mouths and said what he considered to be stupid things. He'd humiliate them in front of their co-workers, reduce them to tears and kick them out of the office and then maybe sack them. Is that the reason that he became uh, such a successful visionary billionaire? Or was that just one of the things he happened to do, which wasn't actually fundamental to success, but unfortunately is imitated by legions of of people who maybe think that if they want to be the next Steve Jobs, they have to be a little bit more uncompromising, a little bit more ruthless towards their uh, subordinates. But if Manuel Pellegrini was to adopt that policy, even on a once-off basis, Mm. it would certainly have a shock value. Yes. Players often like to be shocked, I would say. They go through uh, maybe a more humdrum existence than we would imagine them to. A lot of the time, they train, they drive their big car, they sleep, and then they go training again the next day. Maybe... Uh, a very mild-mannered manager punching them right in the chest. Headbutting in the chest like Zidane. <laughs> I mean, that would definitely cause a, you know, a bit of a, probably a intake of breath. You'd, pick, you'd, obviously, you'd, you'd pick company or one of the real top You'd have dogs. to pick one of the top men. Yeah. The you couldn't do it. Physically big guys. Uh, yeah, you couldn't do it. This, I mean, Silva is a top player for Manchester City, but, you know, if you pick on Silva or Aguero, I don't know if it's going to get the required response, you know. Manuel Pellegrini would actually have to get down on his knees as well to headbutt one of those guys in the chest. Yeah. Although then again, company and, and Toure are big men, you know. Maybe if Pellegrini was to kick them in the back when they weren't expecting it. Somebody in between, maybe a, a Milner type. Because Milner is so well behaved, such a good pro. They'd he wouldn't really hit be back. shocked. They'd really Sorry. be shocked. Sorry, boss. <laughs> he immediately, re- reflexively apologised uh, to Pellegrini as Pellegrini headbutted him in the chest. <laughs> He, he, he's not That's gonna, what being a top pro is all about, Ken. He's not going to do. He's not going to do it. But I think he cares. I think you know people think, oh, Pellegrini. It's like he doesn't care. He just you know he's just kind of got that slightly um, you know he, he's not giving much away. But I mean, remember we were talking to to Dion. Um, was it Dion or, or John Bruin who told us about coming out of um, coming out of Easton's driving out of there after the Manchester City Barcelona game, and they pull up at the lights, and who's there in the next car only? Manuel Pellegrini with his head buried in his hands. Oh no! Either that or sleeping in an odd position. Um, but you know he does. He does care, and I, I don't think it's his fault. The players who are supposed to be, who are among the best paid in the world, and who are supposed to be, you know, champions. In fact, our champions, our league champions. Um, are underperforming. Yeah, he's got the dead man walking look about him now. He certainly looked like he cared in his post-match interviews. He looked very drawn and tired and stressed out, as you would imagine he might be. But the question is, who is going to replace him in the summer? Well, this is a, this is a question. I mean, it's it's whether they, they do replace him, because they, they might not. I mean, one big name, for instance, who looks as though he may be available to a club that wants to give him a load of money is Jurgen Klopp, the manager of Borussia Dortmund, who have who have handed out some pastings to Manchester City in the past. Uh, he also hasn't had a good season. And according to you know some of the more recent transfer chit-chat, 
Uh, Manchester United are trying to take a couple of his players, Mats Hummels, um, strongly linked, Ilkay uh, Gundogan also. And you're kind of, you're in a situation then where sort of, my whole team is gone now. You know, and my stock is falling. Then again, uh, is he the kind of manager? You've got to remember the, the person at Manchester City who's, who's got most influence over this decision is Cheeky Bagheerstein, the technical director. He's the guy who's supposed to set out the football vision. So in terms of what kind of manager do we want, what kind of football do we want to play, he's the person who's making that decision. Now, you've got to consider his background. Uh, Sid Lowe did a brilliant piece um, just a couple of days ago showing a photograph uh, from 28th of August 1996, a Barcelona team celebrating having won the Spanish Super Cup. This is the season Bobby Robson was the manager of Barcelona. He points out that um, among these players that you see in the team photo are four of the eight coaches in the Champions League quarterfinals. Mm. There's uh, Pep Guardiola, Julian Lopetegui, Laurent Blanc and Luis Enrique. Uh, the starting uh, 11 that day, uh, he says only two of them have not become first-team coaches. Uh, so you've got Lopetegui, Ferrer, Popescu, Abelardo, Blanc, Luis Enrique, Sergi, Armour, Guardiola, Stoichkov and uh, Pizzi. Popescu ended up going to jail uh, for fraud. Uh, Guillermo Amor runs the Barcelona Academy or ran the Barcelona Academy and now works uh, in Adelaide as a you know, sporting director. All the rest coaches. Um, and went on 27 players in that squad that season. Five uh, of them, apart from Popescu, the, uh, who went to jail. He's out now, I think. Uh, only five haven't worked as coaches or technical directors. Now, Begierstein wasn't in the squad. He left that summer, but obviously he was there. So this is like the, this is the hothouse for coaching now almost all across Europe. You know, I mean, obviously players who have been at big clubs, you can see that, you know, the, the many years of success Manchester United had is, you can see that there's a number of former United players kind of in, in the ranks of managers now. This is, seems to be the, the kind of highest level. All these people who learned under Cruyff, I'm not saying they're all Guardiola's, Clearly, you know, even in this piece, that you know, they say, well, Guardiola was obviously different from all of us even then. Um, but that, I think, is what Begierstein is. That's that's his where he comes from. That's there his influences. He knows all these guys. So it's going to be one of those, one of that team. I wouldn't necessarily say, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was somebody like Jurgen Klopp is the opposite of these guys. Now he is uh, his almost first commandment of his teams is we will run more than the other team. I, I demand that as a minimum. If you come in here and we haven't outrun the other team at least, then don't look me in the eye because you haven't worked hard enough. Whereas the idea of, of Cruyff is the exact opposite. Make them run. run. You don't win by running. You know, they, they get tired and we finish them off. Um, we, we move the ball around. It's, it's, a, it's like a literally the opposite kind of a thing. Um, Klopp, I think the way Klopp Clubs teams play would work really well in the Premier League, but whether it's the kind of team that Begirstein wants to see, I'm not so sure. Jose Mourinho and his assistant, more to the point, you wanted to talk about. I don't know. I mean, if you if you saw two very contrasting images from the game between uh, Kipior and Chelsea, which Chelsea managed to win with this late goal by Fabregas, brilliantly created by Hazard with a sort of assist to him from Rob Green, who who sliced the clearance pretty badly. Um, but as that goal went in. Uh, Chris Ramsey, the keep your manager, fell to his knees, um, clutching his head, you know, in, oh, no, I can't believe it. Um, and just as he gathered the strength to, to take his hands off his head and, and sort of try to get to his feet, there was Rui Faria, the charming assistant of Jose Mourinho, celebrating pretty wildly uh, right next to him. Now, Rui Faria will say, 
Well, I was simply running over to indicate to my players, uh, you know, my approval of the goal that they'd scored. I mean, we we were all excited. Eighty-eight minute goal with some, with eighty-seven something on the clock, and uh, uh, you know, there was no intent, obviously. To, now, these aren't quotes. I'm imagining what Rui Faria would have said. There's, you know, obviously, I didn't mean that. I would love to see somebody do that to Rui Faria and see how he reacted. Whether or not this person was intentionally uh, sort of taunting him. Um, I think Rufire wouldn't react very well to that. He's not a man who reacts very well to any kind of provocation, although he deals out quite a lot of it himself. Is that his reputation? Is a guy who does yes. react well to this kind of thing? Oh, he, well, he's, he, he's, a, he's an abrasive presence, let's say. Owen. Let's use that word, abrasive. <laughs> Imagine um, a piece of sandpaper being rubbed against your forehead quite hard by Rufaria. That's what he's like. Yeah. Yeah. What, what sort of grade sand, we're talking coarse grade sandpaper as opposed to the smoother stuff yeah coarse coarse enough he wouldn't go in for the fine the fine grade uh, Jose Mourinho on the other hand did you see so, sorry I would say both myself and Ken have worked in the DIY DIY trade okay. have yeah, you never sorry. done never I've done never sanding? worked in never worked in a DIY I worked for Glynn's in Milltown and they had a hardware store but I actually worked in the supermarket yeah. So oh, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. I mean, I would have gone back and forth for like, say, change. And yeah, stuff but you like wouldn't that. have you the same know, knowledge of different sandpaper grades. When it comes to sandpaper, I have to say I'm I'm a novice. This this I'm sandpaper. In, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in I'm in the hands obviously of two experienced two professionals. professionals. Yeah. This sandpaper would be like imagine uh, brown sugar glued to a piece of that that sort of. Well, that I know what sandpaper is. Yeah. I'd, Whereas I'd, the, the finer stuff would be more the like a nail file, you know, that kind of yeah. texture. But Jose Mourinho at the end of the final was a walk towards. Chris Ramsey, uh, palms extended like this. Sorry, Chris. That actually hurt me more than it hurt you. And he and he went and he, it was just this this face of consolation. You know, he almost appeared. It was almost supposed like you might see the Virgin Mary uh, shining down from heaven with light shining from behind her. You know what I mean? That sort of that sort of pose. Uh, cons- to console the world. That was what Joseph, that was what Joseph Mourinho saw as his mission. I don't know if he was trying to make up for what Rui Fari had just done. Joseph Mourinho is also a man sensitive to slights and insults, and I'm sure he saw that and thought, oh, uh, I hope there are many questions about that afterwards. Uh, but actually, it didn't seem to become an issue. It became a big deal on, uh, you know, Twitter and whatnot, but not. Uh, it, it seemed as though the official media owned, ignored it. Tony Pulis. Yeah. Tony Pulis. Um, Tony Pulis did an interesting um, press conference. The, the West Brom lost to Leicester, uh, 3-2. And Tony Pulis' record since he took over um, started off very well, but he's now lost five out of his last six, so it's not actually great at all. Um, now, what, what was interesting about what he did yesterday, was or Saturday, was uh, how much he criticised individual players. It's, it's quite a remarkable one, actually. Um, <clears throat> poor defending, individual mistakes are costing us, which is a fairly typical thing for a manager to say when he wants to indicate where the lion's share of the blame should be. It wasn't the case of, yes, I'm not sure about how I sent out the defensive structure of that team. Maybe the maybe the, I could have tinkered a little with that game plan. Obviously it didn't work out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying players made individual mistakes. Then he names the players. The first goal, Oya has not only won it from Garrett McCauley, he's been able to head it down and get inside Jolien. Two experienced players, bad defending. Third goal, Garrett's facing his own goal away. Should play it away uh, from goal or to Dawson. Why the hell he wants to let it run across him? Goodness knows. <laughs> um, uh, and continues. Brunty has played a square pass across the pitch. <laughs> Brunty that, has played. Brunty has played a square pass across the pitch that it nearly hit Fletcher's head off. Little things like that. Brownie 
as Brownie uh, Brown a day has given the ball away two or three times. Well, you can't believe a professional footballer would do that. Sido did well, but it's about little incidents. So who's Sido? Sido Berhino. Oh, of course. Sorry, That's not a nickname. I was there going, what <laughs> kind of crazy nickname? Where's the name? Who's that one? Um, so there you go. It's just, uh, but he also he also made the point. He kind of uh, he kind of po- pointed a bony finger at Leicester and said, "You're happy now, mm-hmm. but let's wait and just let's just wait and see." Because he said, um, "It gave them an opportunity." To be fair, once they picked the momentum up, they had nothing to lose. That is what they have got. It will be interesting to see if they do get close and they have something to lose, how they react then. So he's essentially saying he's 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 disputing whether Leicester really have the stones to handle this relegation situation. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen too much criticism of Tony Pulis for losing five out of six, but he is a guarantee of safety uh, to West Brom, so you wouldn't expect to get any of that. Do you want one more quick story? Um, I, I, I want two quick ones, though. Okay. Just, uh, th- this has been something we've referred to a few times throughout the season, but is this, uh, uh, Brendan Rodgers talking about Daniel Sturridge in terms which sound to me a little bit impatient. You know, Sturridge has obviously um, has had some injury problems this season. Last season, 21 goals in 29 games. This season, four in seven starts. Roger says, well, when you're out for that length of time, maybe it takes you the same amount of time to get back again, which wouldn't be great because that would be pretty much the whole season. Um, he needs a good he needs a good preseason. Hopefully he'll be fine for next season. He says, everyone's different when they get injured and how they deal with it. A player will never be 100% fit when he plays. They're always carrying something. If it hinders performance, then you can only trust the player that he cannot give anymore or that they can't operate at the level they want to because of injury. But Daniel, there's been a number of injuries he's had. This season has been difficult. He just needs to find a way to physically and mentally try to keep himself as fit as he can. Uh, but sometimes it's not all down to you. Sometimes it's down to luck as well. I do get the impression Rogers is a little bit disappointed with oh, Daniel definitely. Sturridge. Maybe he could just be, you know. Can you really? Maybe it's a little bit more the, the Stephen Gerrard's about about him. Maybe the Stephen Gerrard. Stephen Gerrard even a, a fair. Stephen Gerrard known for playing through the pain barrier. Um, but just a slightly more lion-hearted approach to John Terry. Well, John Terry. John Terry is the ultimate, the ultimate uh, yeah. uh, play through the pain barrier player. Well, he, and Frank Lampard. Remember he showed his toe that time in an interview. Lampard too. He. They're they're so both both. Uh, triumphant masochist. That's what you need at this level. The last thing I want to mention just on is Sunderland getting absolutely blown away by magical Crystal Palace. Uh, Yannick Balazzi's hat-trick. Um, Alan Pardew is just romping away. And Alan Pardew's record um, uh, when you look at it with the manager, the matches that he's managed Palace and Newcastle is outstanding. You know, it's 52, and 52 points from 31 I think. Um and those teams have got half that points in the 31 games they played without him. But uh, just the, the reaction of the Sunderland Echo to this one, um, obviously the, the crowd all started leaving, you know, not for the first time in Sunderland this season. But the Sunderland Echo says, it was a textbook lesson in how to build up a set of supporters and then machine gun that feel-good factor. <laughs> Yet again, the pack of cards collapsed as soon as the first goal went in and the floodgates opened with no oil needed on the hinges. It was terrifying. And once more, left thousands in the stadium of light leaving well before the final whistle. So it sounds as though, again, not happy in Sunderland. That's the end of Kennedy's Board on Sport. I knew the place. Clough, as he calls me, Ravi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. 
but there's no way you can win it better. Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope we're, we're, I've got. We're doing, we're doing lots of four matches. But that, well, I can only look straight. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Buff, pity calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Jonathan Wilson was at Old Trafford and is ready to talk to us now. Jonathan, how impressed were you by Manchester United in what seemed like a pretty good occasion uh, there yesterday? Yeah, I mean. Uh... I guess they'd be concerned by the first 10 minutes, maybe the last five minutes, but the, the 75 minutes in between, they were by far the better side. Um, I think City, having been so lethargic on, on Monday, uh, yeah, they, they did start very well, and you sort of thought, well, maybe maybe the Derby's woken them up, but as soon as they conceded, since they conceded that equaliser, yeah, it, it was all united. And, and I mean, Van Gaal said that the, the second half was, I think, fantastic was the word he used, but probably the best... I mean, certainly that first half hour of the second half was probably the best they've played under him. And and this this surge they've had over the last six games goes on and I guess they almost don't want the season, you know, they almost wish the season weren't finishing next month. They, they, if they had a two or three month run, maybe they could put pressure on the top. So what's, uh, what do you think is going on there, Jonathan? I think you were at the game, you got a chance to see the Van Gaal miracle up close. Uh, who is, uh, who's leading the charge for them? Well, uh, yesterday you'd say Ashley Young was probably. I mean, Van Hal said he was the best player, and I don't think you could dispute that. Scored the goal a little bit fortuitous at um, the well, when his first shot was blocked, it fell perfectly for him to, to knock it in. But he, you know, he was excellent after that. Uh, two assists, the, the, the free kick, and the, the cross for Fellaini, which was one of those crosses that was so good that you know you could see when the ball was in the air, there was no way that, that Fellaini could could miss that. So Joe Hart might have saved it. Well, I, I think that's a bit harsh. I mean, a header from six yards out. Um, I think Straight Hart did pretty well to, to get a foot to it. Um, all Hart can do there is make himself big and hope the ball hits him and hits him in the right place to bounce clear. I, I think if you if you're giving a, an opponent who's as good in the air as Fellaini, effectively a free header, I can't know cliches against him, but Fellaini's always going to win that header. If you're giving him that sort of uh, opportunity, yeah, I don't think you can blame the keeper. Um, so you know, his, his crossing was very good. His, his industry was very good. Um, and you know, he. I think the last game he missed was the Swansea game, which is the last time United lost. And I, you know, I don't think that's coincidence. I think his form and United's form have, have gone hand in hand the last uh, six games. And Marwan Fellaini uh, seems to also have have been a big uh, figure in this. I mean, he was obviously the guy who scored. He he helped to create the first goal. Um, when he came off, he got a massive ovation from a stadium, which I think most of the people sitting in. I would have wanted to, wouldn't have imagined he would be playing in games like this at this stage of the season. I would like to have seen him sold. Do you think he still might be? Well, might be sold. Yeah. Um, I'd be surprised. I mean, I think he's been so effective. Van Hal was—he um, almost praised him more than Young after him. He said that Young had been the best player uh, yesterday, but he, he sort of said of Fellaini that uh, I can't remember the exact words, but something along the lines of, "You know, he's he's not always the greatest." Uh, technician, you know, he occasionally looks a bit clumsy, but you know he'll work hard. You know, and I, th- I think the key phrase was, you know, he'll do what he's told. Uh, and I think, yeah, Van Hal likes that. And he, he made a slightly strange comment uh, saying that he, he always passes to the same colour, uh, colour shirt, presumably he meant by that. Um, which I'm not sure if Lenny always does, but I, I guess it's a good thing if you manage saying that. So I, I'd be, I'd be really surprised if Lenny was sold. It may be the next season he doesn't have quite such a big role to play. 
But I mean, he's been an enormous factor uh, over the last sort of, two or three months. Um, I mean, it wasn't just the goal he scored. Uh, it was also the the, uh, the third goal. It was him who won possession. And it, was, it was a goal actually a little bit similar to the opening goal at Liverpool. That Fellaini won the ball out on the left touchline, knocked the ball back to, to Blint. And Blint played the ball in the middle. In, in this case, it was Rooney. I think he then helped it on to Matter, whereas it had been uh, Herrera at Anfield. But that same... That same shape, Fellaini wins the ball, knocks it back to Blind. To, you know, two quick passes, and, and suddenly matters free. So I, I, I think he's hugely influential. I think he you know, he really devastated City down that flank. I mean, all four United goals came down the same side, and it's not a coincidence. It's the side of midfield that, that Fellaini plays on. That even if he's not directly involved, the, the sort of panic that, that, that he instills, I, I think, really unsettles teams. I mean, Zabaleta. I know he hasn't had a great season by his standards, but, but Zabaleta and, and company that that. That axis that was so strong last season on, on the right side of City's defence was was absolutely destroyed by by Fellaini, and they they tried Yaya against him, they tried Fernandinho against him. Neither really was able to help. Navas didn't do much in terms of tracking Blint down that side. Uh, but you know, at the heart of it all is is Fellaini, and I guess that that was one of the reasons Young was so effective that, just, that he also was playing on that flank. That, that, that Fellaini sort of punching holes for him. I just find it hard to imagine Manchester United building a uh, game plan around. Punching holes in, in the opposing team with a with a big lad who can win balls on the left flank. It's just it just seems like they could um, they could probably come up with something better. I mean, this is one of the richest clubs in the world. They don't have to make do with stuff. Yeah, they've got they've got some decent results lately, but don't forget they're still third in the league. I mean, you know, Marwan Fellaini uh, has done well in recent matches, but. I mean, are, are we seriously saying this guy could could be a could have a long term future at Manchester United? I just don't think he comes up to to scratch. Um, I mean, that, that's why I say his role may be reduced next season. I, I think ideally there, there would be a a more sophisticated way of playing, but I think as a as a second option, uh, the fear that he spreads, I, I don't see why you would not use that if, if that option is there to you. Uh, I think there's always a danger when you have a player. Uh, who has such such physical strengths so you, you you overplay to that, and I think we've seen when United have played badly this season they have overused that. But I, I don't think it, it's any you know, it's particularly different to say uh, the way uh, Juventus has played for Athletic and then for Benfica Juventus that you know, he, he he gives them that physical option. It's, it's very very difficult to deal with. Or the way something like Christian Vieira used to play. There's a difference. Obviously, he's coming from deep. He's coming from midfield rather than being the centre forward. But I, I don't. I, yeah, I think to just say, "Oh, we don't want to play like that's not the way our club plays." I think is um, it's reductive, and it's almost a little bit snobbish. Why would you not use it if it works? That doesn't make any sense to me. If you've got a player who can do that, use it. I'm with you, Jonathan Kenz, is being a football snob. I just ca- I can't wait to see this against Bayern Munich. You know, in the, in the Champions, League. I just can't wait to see. The- well, okay, Bayern Munich. Look at how they played against Dortmund. Uh, was it the cup game last season? Yeah, when, when they, 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 they kept kicking the ball over the top. Forward. Launched it long in terms of to beat the press. What's that, wrong with that? But, well, that that was a tactical surprise. I mean, they did that specifically because Dortmund are they know Dortmund are going to come running after them in their own half of the field. So they just decided let's kick it over Dortmund. They won't be expecting that. Everyone expects us to pass it short. Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here is is building a game plan around a, a six foot four inch battering ram. Um, well, I'm not sure it is in the long term what we're talking about. That's why I'm saying that his role may be reduced next season. But I, I still think he's got a valuable role to play, particularly given. So many of the the elites in Europe do play a, a hard pressing game. Look at um, look at Liverpool against Arsenal last week. I mean, okay, maybe we're not talking about the elite now, 
They'd have loved a Fellaini figure to knock the ball along to, just anything to release that pressure, to to you know to to to, uh, to bypass that press. So given pressing has become and high pressing has become such a feature in modern football at the highest level, having a figure in there who gives you an immediate option to bypass that, I, I, I don't know why you'd, you'd even begin to to consider getting rid of that. You might not want to use it every week, but to, to, if you've got that option there. I think you'd be crazy to, to, to lose it. I'm more interested in the future of Robin Van Persie, who tweeted last week, back to training with the group today. It was a great session. Happy to be fit and able to play again. Looking forward to my next game. Uh, I'm sure Robin sure. Persie has been del- Van Persie has been delighted sitting there watching Manchester United go on this rampage without him in the team. When will his next game be? How does he fit into that team? Oh, I don't think he does at the moment. I mean, uh, I think, I, I guess when you, you get to his age, he's what, 32, is he? Is that right? Yeah, um, maybe you have to accept your your role is reduced and, and that he is a, a set, essentially now Rooney's reserve. Um, I guess there may be games when you know I want to play two up front, or there may be games when um, I think weirdly United are still slightly short personnel in midfield, so so Rooney may have to to drop deep. I mean he, he ended up with when when Carrick went off, it ended up with Rooney playing in front of the back four about final three or four minutes yesterday. So yeah, I, I guess yes, he has a role, um, you know, squad role playing when Rooney isn't playing centre-forward or, or playing alongside Rooney if they play two. But at the moment, you'd say there's only one berth for centre-forward and, and that's Rooney's at the moment. And, and that's probably bad news for Falcao as well. Mm. Um, we haven't really mentioned Manchester City yet. They actually started the game brilliantly yesterday for, for about 15 minutes. They ripped Manchester United to shreds. And then it was though this hammer blow of the equaliser just... Um, it was as though they gave up on the spot. I wonder what Manchester City... And Gary Neville made this point after... Um, after they scored their second goal, Neville said, why are they not running back to restart this game? Look, look at them, they're just kind of walking back. They're, they're acting as though this is just a consolation goal. When actually there, there might be six minutes left to play here and they're playing against ten men, why aren't they trying to at least look as though they're, they're going to score this goal? I wonder with Man City, are they, are they a bit too realistic for their own good, these, these uh, old pros? I mean, they seem to almost throw in the towel on the league when it looked as though they couldn't catch Chelsea and... Uh, and we saw a little bit of that, I think, a couple of points in the game yesterday. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's purely with the journalist sat on, as soon as it became 40, obviously I'd written my match report saying how great United had been, and you sort of had this moment of panic of, oh, Christ, is there going to be a, you know some late twist here? Within sort of 30 seconds of a restart, I thought, no, there's not. City just don't, you know, they're not putting any pressure on. And I, I think there was a, a, an opportunity there, particularly given that United didn't really have a holder in midfield by that stage. It was Rooney playing there that... If if City had really been been laying siege for United goal, I think United might have you might have wobbled a bit. Um, but I, I guess that's sort of the the accretion of of all the disappointments since. I mean, it's an amazing thing to think that on New Year's Day, City and Chelsea were exactly level, exact level on points, level on goal difference, level on goals scored at the top of the table, and now the gap is is what twelve points, and Chelsea have a game in hand. Um, that that collapse is is extraordinary. I, I, I mean, is it realism? Or I think it's just a squad that's sort of lost faith in itself and maybe lost a bit of interest. Yeah, and Yaya Torre is the one who's often accused of losing that interest. He's a bit of a lightning rod for this. He did run around 11 kilometres yesterday, which is the BBC uh, match day two. We're saying that was the fourth most out of any players. So it's not as... Uh, 11 kilometres of high-intensity running is... Uh, well, maybe it's not all high-intensity. That could be the issue that people have. Is Tory being somewhat unfairly scapegoated at this stage? Um, I mean, I think he's part of the problem, certainly. Maybe he's even the major part. Uh, I think he's, he's sort of an easy figure to pick on because he has got that languid way of playing that even when he's playing at his best, you know, he'll be making what, for anybody else, would be 
you know, a long busting run 60 yards forward and Tsure will do it with amazing uh, you know with great grace with there'll be there'll be no sense of him sort of really sort of striving even when he's doing remarkable things so I think just sort of the, the his whole demeanor means he's an easy person to target when things are going badly uh, I thought you know he really struggled against Fellaini yesterday I mean there clearly was a plan early on that he should try and pick up Fellaini and, and, and try and block those runs and they quickly abandoned that and moved Fernandinho across to that side um, I mean I, he's had a very strange season that uh, he played he played really really well in December when City had that very good run when they won what 9 out of 11 I think the two games he didn't win were games he hadn't played but he, he was actually he was he was really poor at the Copa Nations I know that sounds strange given that uh, Cote d'Ivoire won the thing but it was probably his worst Copa Nations well probably his worst Copa Nations actually I, I, and he's, he's played regularly since 2006 but it, apart from the golden semi-final against DRC he, he, he wasn't really involved he, he looked a bit lethargic um, his, his brother actually played far better than him um, in, in, in Equatorial Guinea I, I knew if you, if you were saying who were the key reasons that, that the Ivorians won that tournament it, it wasn't either Toure it was it was uh, the, the two centre backs, Cannon and Bailey. It was Jovino. It, w- it was Boney. Uh, it was uh, Max Gradle. Uh, it, the two of those, or, or certainly Yaya, wasn't really that effective. So I, I just wonder whether whether he's just old, whether you know age has caught up with him, and to play in a two uh, and, and try and sort of protect the defence and get forward to, to play that sort of box to box role he's always played. Maybe his legs just aren't up to it anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of those things you always slightly love to criticise because he, he obviously had the personal tragedy last May, and you, you don't know how that affects people, and, and you, know, you, you wonder how much of an impact that's had. But if you're looking purely at how he's played, he's had a poor season, and you look at his age, and, and, and that's the conclusion you draw that maybe he, he's got to play in a three in centre midfield, or he's got to learn just to sit in front of the back four and, and adapt his game. Yeah, well, he's not alone in having a bad season at Manchester City. I mean, I saw comments, <clears throat> sorry, over the weekend from Vincent Company, um, really moany comments actually from from Company, where he was complaining that Manchester City weren't being allowed to spend enough money, and he was attacking financial fair play and saying that it was entrenching. Uh, the clubs that were already at the top, and you know, we're we're kind of familiar with those arguments. But I thought to myself, should he not at some point mention that Manchester City signed the world's most expensive defender, uh, and you know, in the in the summer, and he wasn't even judged good enough to to start the game yesterday? That they signed, uh, I think, the Premier League's top scorer in 2014 in January when it looked like they needed to pep themselves up a bit. I mean, th- these are hardly starvation rations that Manchester City are being forced to survive on. Do you, do you think companies got a point or, or should he maybe start to look at his own game before finding excuses? Uh, I think I think both are true. Um, I mean, company I think has had an awful season in part because uh, he hasn't been given much protection by the, by the midfield and he's, he, you know, he repeatedly gets caught out by stepping out into the midfield and ending up 10 yards ahead of a defensive line. But the reason he's doing that is because the, the back of the midfield is not really protecting him. So yeah, it's partly his fault. It's partly the dynamics of the team. But I mean, it's, it's interesting what he says about FFP because I, I think there's a sense that City have you know, they've been left with this ageing squad. I think it's the oldest squad in in the Premier League. They've been left with this ageing squad, and they've sort of been stranded as FFP rules have come in. But the reason that's happened is that the three hundred twenty-seven million pounds they've spent in the last four years has been spent incredibly badly. That if you look at the team that played in September two thousand eleven in their first ever Champions League game, and 
you, you looked at the, you know, what you could say their first choice team now, I think nine of the players would be the same. And the only two who, who've come in in that period, in that £327 million, 20-odd players, whatever it is, uh, the only two who've really sort of established themselves are Fernandinho, who you wouldn't say has been a, an outstanding success, but he, you know, he's done fine. And Martin de Michaelis, who's brought in a short-term cover, but is still you know, the, the, the first-choice second centre-back because Mangala hasn't, hasn't done it. So you know, they managed to replace Jolien Lescott and Gareth Barry, and that's it so far in, in four years. So there's been a real issue of recruitment there, which is, with FFP, it, it, you know, it has created a real problem for them. One real quick one then to finish, Jonathan. Who do you think is more likely to be at Manchester City next season? Uh, the manager, Manuel Pellegrini, who's lost head out of the last 15 games, or uh, the technical director, Chiki Begirstein, who's responsible for buying all these terrible players? There's, I mean, there's a, there's a rumour that Begiristan's wanted at Barcelona, which might give him an easy way out. But I, I mean, I think serious questions have to be asked of him. I mean, the recruitment hasn't gone well. There's no way of uh, of, of painting it in a good light. It's been it's been disastrous. You know, to spend 327 million for for the return they've had is you know, is, is appalling. Um, now, does Pellegrini stay? Is something's gone wrong there? The players aren't playing him now. Is that the players' fault? They also stopped playing for Mancini, which suggests that maybe it is their fault. They are ageing. Maybe they're, they're sated. Uh, but to replace those players when there's been such wastage is going to be hugely costly, and City might not be able to do it with FFP. Um, the, you know, everything you hear around the club is that City would like to keep Pellegrini on for another year, certainly before yesterday, they, that's what they are saying, um, because they think in 2016 Guardiola's contract's up and there might be a possibility he lives, leaves Bayern. Um, Klopp maybe will be available then. Simeone, although I suspect his style of football wouldn't wouldn't play that well there, but he you know he's not going to be available this summer. Might be available 2016. So so the you know the, the, the possible available shortlist is looks stronger for 2016 than, than for this summer. So you're probably looking at a short term appointment or to keep Pellegrini on in sort of a you know semi sort of caretaker role. But given that the dynamic between him and the players appears to have broken down so irrevocably. I'm not sure you can do that. I think there comes a point with with drift like this that you almost need a sacrifice just to try and arrest the drift. And maybe Pellegrini is the victim of that. But then which manager is really going to want to come in knowing that he's probably only got a year. Well, Rafa Benitez is. But do they really want Rafa Benitez? I, oh, I don't know. I'd say lots of lots of managers would be happy enough to take the Manchester City job, whatever the whatever the uh, time frame is going to be. I mean, is that not just how big clubs are these days? You're not guaranteed more than a season anywhere, really. Yeah, possibly, but I think when there's there's such a, been such an obvious message out of the club that they're quite excited about the, the managers they might be able to get in 2016. Yeah, yeah, that's even less long term security than, than than normal. So, I mean, uh, yeah, if they did get rid of Pellegrini, would they even offer a two year contract, or would they be saying right, it's a it's a one year contract and and it's you know it's effectively an interim role like Benitez had had at Chelsea? I, I don't know. All right, Jonathan, we'll leave it there. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks. The tragedy that Jonathan mentioned there was the death of uh, Torre's brother, Ibrahim, who died of cancer while Torre was playing at the World, Cu- World Cup. And it's impossible to measure the effect of something like that on a guy's season. Obviously, when you see them out there, all you're seeing is the footballer and not necessarily thinking about too much about what, what's going on in, in somebody's actual life. Ken, you, are, you can confirm that you're not Fellaini's agent, right? This is the second time in about four days you've been touting a move from elsewhere, <laughs> even though he's ripping it up for Manchester United at the moment. And just, to also, uh, just on top of Exclusive that... Exclusive Merrill and Fellaini interview with Ken Early next week. <laughs> of course, for sure, it would be a dream to play yeah. for Real Madrid, but for now, I'm focused. Is it not uh, I don't know where these rumours are coming from. Is a much more difficult guy to keep happy on the bench, if indeed that is uh, long-term where Fellaini's going to be, 
Robin Van Persie. I mean, what Jonathan says there, Van, Van Persie will just have to accept he's 30-something years of age now. He's just going to be Wayne Rooney's reserve. Used to, I don't think Robin Van Persie will happily sit there for even one season as a, a bona fide reserve player. No, uh, but I think they've given up on Van Persie. Do you think so? I think so. I think physically he's uh, he's not really... He's he's not really there anymore. I mean, surprising though, given that it's Van Hal. Maybe we're, we're putting too much store there in somebody's uh, nationality and the fact that they've got a previous relationship with the guy. But I would have assumed if anyone's going to get the best out of him, it's um, a coach who he knows really well. Yeah, but he has to be able to do his part. I'm sure. I mean, I think Robin van Persie, if he was playing at his best, if he was playing the kind of form he was in his first season at Manchester United, he would definitely be in the team. There's no. There's no doubt. When was the last time we saw that? I mean, Van Persie, even in the World Cup, was start look to, start to look exhausted after the first couple of games. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember talking about that, saying, you know, Van Persie against Spain, I've never seen him look so sharp. But like he had he had a couple of months to get ready for that match, and he obviously made sure he did. By the time it got to the the, the second round and quarterfinal, he was knackered. And this is you know, you're not going to get that kind of run up to every game. If he had two months to prepare for every game, I think he might still be pretty effective. But that's not necessarily uh, not going to be the case. A viable. <laughs> you might have to take a wage cut. If you just, you just can't really... Um, I mean, I think I do, one interesting thing about United at the moment is how uh, the, the charge now for them is being led by the kind of outcasts. You know, these guys who were Fellaini, obviously, but also Ashley Young, uh, Smalling and Matter. These are the guys who scored the goals. All of them, I think, were... Uh, people are saying, well, these, these guys don't have a future. With, you know, I think Mada has always been quite a well-regarded play, regarded player. But certainly go back to the autumn, people are saying, well, I don't see where Mata fits in this team. You know, and they've, they've been the ones who have been really um, leading the charge. The only one of the, well, there's Herrera and Blind have been the, the signings who have performed. Phil Jones has been playing really well. He's another guy people are like, well, this guy is, is a bit of a klutz, you know. Actually, he's been performing at really yeah, high I, standard. I always sense that the, the, the few people who did defend David Moyes seemed to defend him on the basis that, well, look what he's got to work with, which yeah. I never thought was a fair defence of somebody, to be honest, because those players had, had done it for Alex Ferguson and are good players. Without Some of them, the likes of Ashley Young, to be honest, surprises me how well he's playing at the moment because I didn't think he necessarily had it in him. But some of those other guys, uh, clearly Ashley Young does have the talent as well. So yeah. it's a bit of a free pass for a manager to say, oh, well, you know, these guys aren't supposed yeah. to Yeah, and uh, in, a, in a strange kind of way, the way the last 10 minutes went in that game was like some sort of nightmare uh, time travel back to, you know, December when Falcao and Di Maria came on. We're both, both just gave away the ball or fell over. That was their entire contribution. Carrick went off. Now, obviously, we're, you know, we're down to 10 men at that stage. Yeah. So maybe that had more of an impact than Carrick's absence. But without Carrick, United looked like half the team. Real Madrid against Atletico is one of the big Champions League games this week. A repeat of last year's final. And Kieran Canning joins us to, well, talk, really reflect back on that Champions League final, first of all, Kieran, because it's when two teams from the same country meet, there's, it tends to be almost instantly forgotten by the rest of Europe, I would say, but certainly not by the people in, in that country. What was the aftermath of the of Real's victory there in the days and weeks that followed? It was, it was a bit of a, a summation of the two clubs' history in, in the sense that Real Madrid always have the impression of coming through in the end of the, by far the most successful club in, in European history and in, in the European Cup, obviously. That was their 10th their uh, European Cup, La Decima that they've been wanting for, for such a long time. So the concentration was more on that and Madrid's success and finally 
uh, you know, getting over the line and, and winning the the tenth European Cup than necessarily Atletico's disappointment. And it, it was kind of a, a the spoils were shared over the season. If you think that Atletico had already won their sort of big trophy and, and winning La Liga just a week before, and I think that that played a bit a massive part in the final because Atletico obviously got to the final with a lot of players either injured in the case of Diego Costa, for example, came off after just a few minutes or um, sort of not quite fully fit. And, and because of that, they kind of ran out of steam towards the end of the game and Ramos got the, the equaliser and then, you know, the, the, the extra time Real Madrid were by far the, the stronger team. But it's been a very interesting turnaround because I remember speaking to a lot of journalists after that game, the, the ones that, that cover Real and Atletico week in, week out, and we thought, this is the end of this great Atletico story under Diego Simeone. They're going to lose, you know, two or three players as they did, particularly uh, Courtois going back to Chelsea and Costa going to Chelsea, and they're not going to be able to compete against Madrid and Barcelona going forward. Um, now in the league, you could say that's been the case, and that they're not going to win the league this year. But in the six games they've played against uh, Real Madrid, they're yet to be beaten. They've won, they've won four of them, so they've managed to almost. Forget the forget the the horrors of, of Lisbon. Put that behind them, and that's what makes this this uh, quarterfinal so interesting because it's hard to tell who's who's more out for revenge. Is it Atletico trying to avenge last season's Champions League final, or Real? Um, the last time they played Atletico just a couple of months ago when they lost four 0 in what Ancelotti described as the worst game that that he's taken charge of as Real Madrid uh, manager. Kieran, is anyone any of the Madrid fans as they've been hammering Gareth Bale this season? Has there been anyone standing up and saying, "Hang on, hang on a second, he was the guy who scored the the lead goal, the two one goal in extra time." Sure, Ronaldo got his goal in the end and let the whole world know about it, but surely the guy, the player who scored the goal that essentially delivered them the Champions League, the decima. That would have bought him a certain, at least a season's grace in the minds of Real Madrid fans, which doesn't seem to have happened. Yeah, I think I think it has bought him some grace. I think think the criticism would be uh, even stronger if he wasn't known as you know, the, the man of the finals, as they call him here, because he scored obviously in the the Copa del Rey final as well, um, and in the the Club World Cup final, which is taken more seriously here than perhaps it is in, in other parts. Of the Isn't world. that what football is in Madrid? Especially if you're playing for Real, uh, if you're the man of the finals, surely you're beloved by all fans. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think that the, the the criticism of Bale um, has has actually been you know most of it's been pretty justified. I think when you look at his performances against Atletico, obviously you know the the, the one that just stands out is what you're saying is that is the Champions League final where he scored that goal and you've got to to give him the credit that he was in the right place at the right time and he was the only one able to to keep up with Di Maria when he made that run through the political defence. But even in that game, if you look at the the game over the 120 minutes, he'd been having pretty much from Hamer until the point where he scored the goal. He'd missed quite a few decent chances where the game was at at one nil. Um, and this season, he hasn't. He's been pretty anonymous in, in all the games against. Atletico, even even to the extent that, um, and won the the cup games, and Atletico's problem position this year has been, has been left back and and replacing uh, Felipe Luis, who also went to Chelsea, and they stuck a a kid, uh, Lucas, who's as normally a centre back, out on bail in this cup game, and that's the the only game that uh, Lucas has played all season, and he still had a stormer, and Bale hardly got into the game, so I think that um, Bale has been given the grace, and that. More than, as you say, you know, more than being backed by the fans, he's one of the president's men, which is the most important thing at, at Real Madrid. So everyone knows that if he's fit, he's still going to play, despite the fact that now 
with uh, James Rodriguez and Modric, but it, there is a, a legitimate argument for saying that he could be dropped and they could play uh, the four of uh, Isco, Cruz, Modric and James in midfield with Benzema and Ronaldo up front. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Di Maria there, reminded me that he actually got man of the match in that, and that was his last game for Madrid. They thought that wasn't, wasn't good enough for him to... Uh, uh, for him to stay another season, but I wonder. We, we, I mean, we were talking recently and, and last week about the Manchester derby and the, a little bit about the kind of uh, atmosphere there between the supporters of that game, which, uh, according to John Bruin, can can often isn't isn't the friendliest of derbies. What is it like at this one between Real Atletico? Is there uh, is there genuine bad feeling between these supporters, or is it all just a bit of a caper? There's definitely bad feeling from Atletico towards Real Madrid. I would say that um, Atletico's resurgence has has made it you know, a real sort of derby field and some sort of nastiness in the air because just a few years ago, and this is you know this is testament to what Simeone has done and completely turning Atletico around. Um, Atletico hadn't beaten Real Madrid for 14 years. There was a famous banner um, from the the Real Madrid ultras. Uh, released towards the end of just like another routine 2 0 win against Letico a couple of years ago, asking for a, you know, a, a, a dignified rival for a decent derby. Um, and that was of attitudes of, of Real Madrid towards Letico. It was, you know, the, 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 poor, the poor kids from across town, and they're not a, a, a danger in any way uh, to Real Madrid. Real Madrid just, just to cruise into derbies, pick up the three points, and move on. There used to be this saying that Letico gave. Um, Real Madrid nine points of a head start in every La Liga title race because they they had this run of constantly losing to Real Madrid twice and beating Barcelona. So that, you know they were they were taking three points off Barcelona as well and giving them to Real Madrid. But what Semione's done is now made Atletico a real a real threat again. And I think that of all the teams that Real Madrid could have got in in the Champions League draw, maybe apart from Bayern, the one that they really didn't want to face was Atletico because Atletico seemed to know. How to nullify them and and really expose their weaknesses? What about? Uh, I just want one other question about the the attitude of supporters when it comes to uh, a beloved uh, player who has come from the club, then has gone away for many years to bigger clubs, uh, but then has returned when those bigger clubs didn't want him anymore. Uh, Fernando Torres uh, scored his first ever own goal uh, over the weekend. Uh, he knocked one in from Malaga in the thirty seventh minute. Uh, so I think he's now level in terms of league goals for and against Atletico Madrid, which isn't a great record after, I think, 13 appearances. He, uh, how does the, I mean, we, we always heard a lot about how, you know, the Atletico Madrid supporters love this kid, he's one of their own. Um, does that love survive uh, in the kind of circumstances that uh, that have characterised Torres' relationship with Atletico? It certainly has until uh, this point. The, the one caveat to what you're saying in terms of him only scoring one league goal was he did score twice against Real Madrid um, in one of those sort of six, game, uh, six games that Atletico have gone unbeaten. He scored twice the Bernabeu to put them through in the cup and that was only sort of three or four games uh, after his return so that kind of bought him another huge slice of, lo- of love from the, the Atletico fans that, that they weren't going to forget that moment as well. Actually I've been Surprised by by just how much of an emotional connection there is from the Atletico fans to Torres. I mean, the, the day that he was presented at that point in the season, that was the second highest attendance at the Calderon. You know, just to see him come out and and do a few keepy uppies and say his his, uh, his hellos again to the fans. So 
that's it's certainly maintained. He's certainly he's one of the the players that gets his name chanted at every game when he comes off or comes on as a substitute because he rarely lasts ninety minutes. He's always you know there's always a standing ovation. However, I would say it is a, a, a huge uh, boost for Atletico that Mandzukic has been past fit. He's he's missed the last couple of games because of an ankle problem. Um, but he trained yesterday and it looks like he's going to start. And given how Mandzukic and Griezmann sort of tore uh, Real Madrid apart in that 4-0 game uh, just a couple of months ago, I think it's going to be very important that it is he and, and Griezmann up front and Torres maybe used just as that impact substitute. All right, Kieran Carney, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks, guys. Ah, yeah, poor old Fernando Torres. I'm quite struck by how struck Kieran was by the emotional and continues to be by the emotional connection that he has with the supporters. As you say, he's gone away, uh, made a lot of money, played in some very good teams, steadily declined, come back to his old club, just about bought himself, reminded the fans that he is able to score goals, or at least was able to score goals by banging in a couple against Real. But other than that, it seems to have been pretty bad on the pitch. And yet those fans... strikes me that he could get away with another three or four years playing professionally for Atletico Madrid, doing nothing, and still not having his legacy affected negatively in any way. Yeah, I mean, he, he reminds me a bit of, I don't know, Emilio Estevez, maybe? You know? I mean, when's the, when's the last time you saw Emilio Estevez or something? Is he, is, he still, is he still acting? I would, I would assume so, yeah. I mean, he had, a, he had a successful career. I have no doubt he has a maybe more than one big house. And maybe he has. I mean, I suppose it's different in that Emilio Estevez isn't out there being pilloried week after week for his continued for his ineffectiveness. You're also making assumptions about Emilio Estevez here, Ken. For all we know, he could have decided that theatre is the way to go. He could be uh, having an incredibly successful off-Broadway career over in the US that we mightn't be too familiar with if we're not seeing him. Yeah. Just because he's not in the big Hollywood flicks, Ken. Exactly. Whereas Torres is, you know, maybe I don't know Macaulay Culkin. No, it's too much. Um, Torres is a Champions League winner. A, Double, you know, a World Cup winner, a double Euros winner, top top goal scorer in Euro twenty twelve. Um, he's done pretty well for himself. So sympathy is going to be in short supply. I, it is amazing that it all. It does seem to be conclusively finished now for him. I think. All right, there was actually a third Mighty Ducks movie. Just by the was way, there? yeah. So in your face, Ken. All right. <laughs> Before we go, the really sad news came in over the weekend that Ray Tracy, the former Republic of Ireland striker, has passed away. He won 42 caps for Ireland in the 60s and 70s and was a central figure in the stories that John Giles used to tell us about the social element around those games. I think Ray Tracy and the banjo always seemed to feature pretty heavily in John's memories of the sing-songs then. Now, he went on to manage Shamrock Rovers to the title. He was a pundit on Ortiz coverage of Ireland game, games in the 90s, eventually became the FAI's official travel agent. I actually went to school with Ray's sons and played uh, in football teams with them, John and Gary, both absolute gentlemen. So my condolences to all of Ray's family and friends. Uh, that's it for us for the football podcast. Lots of Masters chat to come in our later podcast today and we'll reflect on Andy Lee's dramatic fight in Brooklyn against Peter Quillen. You can listen through all the usual methods including SoundCloud on iTunes. Get the Stitcher app if you're if you're on an Android. In the meantime, thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Thanks again. Thank you, Owen, and thank you, Kieran. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 